Welcome back to the Policy Viz Podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I hope you and your families are well and healthy and safe. I hope you've been enjoying the last few episodes of the podcast. I've really enjoyed talking to my guests. I've also enjoyed piecing together the various video parts of the podcast. And if you want to watch my conversations with my different guests, head over to my YouTube channel. Um, It's been pretty fun trying to put that together. It's a new challenge. I've also been doing a lot more work with my newsletter. Finally have, I think, a system set up. I've been writing some more behind-the-scenes blog posts and some other blogs and some DataViz content that hasn't yet made it to the full blog. So if you want to get that sort of behind-the-scenes look, you want to check out some content that maybe isn't going to make it on policyviz.com, check out the newsletter. But on to the podcast. So on this week's episode of the show, Rebecca Pazos joins me. Rebecca is an inter active graphics journalist currently with the Straits Times in Singapore. I was really interested to talk with Rebecca because first off, her work is just terrific. Um, The types of visualizations that they often create in some Asian countries, at least in the work and the people that I've spoken to, tends to be a lot more data dense, a lot more different than some of the work that you might see in European countries and the United States. And so we spent a lot of time talking about those different audiences and what goes into the data journalism and the process at the Straits Times. And then we talk about a few of Rebecca's uh, personal projects uh, that she's worked on, including a master's degree that she's currently pursuing. And so you can link to all, you can see all the links to all those uh, projects and stories and her profiles on the episode notes. And so I'm going to turn it over to our conversation. So here's this week's episode of the podcast with Rebecca Puzzles. Hey, Rebecca, good morning. I guess my time, good morning. <laughs> and yeah. Eve, your time. Um, how are you? Welcome to the show. Good. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, um, I'm excited to have you too, because we've been sort of talking on and off now for almost a year, I guess, right? Because yeah. um, we, we were talking about, I saw some of your great work early in the year, and then I asked you to do that video for the One Chart at a Time series, and then we were talking about doing this, and then... Summer happened, and then finally we were, we were able to have this conversation. So um, I'm really excited. Um, yeah. As I was sort of talking about before, before we started recording, I, I feel like there's this focus in the data viz world on the New York Times graphics team and the Washington Post and the Guardian. And then after like sort of the US and Western Europe, it sort of like tails off. Like there's, you know, just like the attention that the Berliner Morgan Post gets and the Hindustan Times and the Straits Times gets sort of like diminishes. Um, and for not for lack of quality, just for lack of the world, I guess. So I was hoping we could talk about your work at the Straits Times, what the team looks like, and maybe if you have thoughts on how communicating data in Singapore might differ from communicating, you know, if you're primarily, you know, on the East Coast of the United States. So right. that's, I know that's a broad question, but I'm just going to like, <laughs> pass that to you, I guess, to just start. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. So, yeah, I mean, if you haven't noticed already, I have an Australian accent and I'm originally from Australia. I moved to Singapore about eight years ago now. So the the Asian perspective is still very new to me. Um, But I guess having worked at the Straits Times now for going on six years, um, I've definitely become more aware of like the differences, I guess, um, I, I don't have experience with um, the U.S. side of things, but at least right. I have a Western upbringing and I kind of know 
where we come from in that regard and how it's different here. So actually, Pei Ying Lo uh, just published a story on DataViz Society today, it was, um, but if we need to say a date, it's 26th of August. <laughs> um, so, so she uh, published an article. Um, they, she runs Continentalist, which is the DataViz, um, right. kind of like the pudding, uh, but in Southeast Asia. Um, and she published a story today exactly about this issue, about the fact that most data viz storytelling, especially for the media side of things, um, tends to focus on the Europeans or definitely in the US. Right. Um, and that has expanded out. I think when I first started, it was very, very new. Um, we, we had some interest in open data. There was an open data movement in Southeast Asia. The Singapore government had set up a data portal um, here. Right. So it was very exciting um, when I first started uh, to see what was going to happen out of that um, for this particular region. And I guess like since then, um, you know, in the beginning for our team specifically, we started off just myself, a developer, from Peru and my husband as the designer um, who's from Argentina. So we were completely foreign talent um, in the right. newsroom. Yeah. Doing yeah. this thing that no one knew really what we were doing. <laughs> uh, a lot of it gets tied up in, in visual storytelling and not so much data storytelling. So that's a battle yeah. that I've been dealing with um, just like from a news perspective, they're very used to um, like graphics in print um, or like, uh, you know, uh, comics even in print. Right. Um, that's something that they can relate with. But moving it to like complex data visualization mm -hmm. has been a bit of a, a struggle. Um, and I think in the last six years now we've we've started to sort of slowly gain ground there at the straits time so now our team we have um, dedicated data journalists as well um, which has been a big leap we still don't have like a data editor which i think is a uh something that's missing um mm -hmm. someone that can really uh knows how to present data and knows its biases and knows its ins and outs that's sort of not something that um we have yet, but data journalists, yes, right. uh, which is why, which has resulted in that project that you, that we were talking about last year on um, the COVID 1 million deaths with the right. um, stream graph, the stream, stream graph, graph. Yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, when we managed to actually get that published and passed our editors, it was like amazing because that's pure data viz and it's really right. nice to see that uh, kind of come through and be published and recognized as visual storytelling as well beyond just like the fancy stuff like right. I, to me it's fancy and I love it but right. um, they're not used to it yeah yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm, I'm curious um, on the data editor like if you had the power of the budget and the power of the hire like how would you write that job description or, or I guess what would be that data editor job at the, at the times? So I guess there's a lot of misconception around the use of data and a lot of journalists like in the Straits Times, this is probably common. Like it's surprising yeah. how common these issues are anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Are, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cause um, I think data, data is just like, 
it doesn't matter what language you speak or where you are like data data or data and we all have the same challenges with it yeah exactly. i'm curious like the only other data editor that i've heard of in media and i'm sure there are many but the only one i've heard of is amanda cox uh when she, I think she is in that role now at the New York Times, but I'm curious, like, what would that job be? And like, what would they do? And then I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like, do you see that? So I'll, I'll reveal my biases about how the newsroom works, right? So I sort of imagine that there are your sort of uh, traditional journalists, and then there are sort of data journalists who are uh, doing more sort of code. And then there's kind of a design team. Um, but a data editor, I would imagine in my head is sort of an umbrella across everybody. But I don't then I don't know how like it all intersects. So that's like, how would you like build that structure? So I guess I mean, I can pinpoint it to an exact uh, example oh. is uh, yeah. coronavirus data, right? Yeah. Um, I think we have all seen how important it has been to be reporting on this data, and how fickle the data is as well. I guess the word would be fickle is that yeah. um, we have all this data, and it's amazing to have it. But the the impression that it leaves on people um, can be misconstrued very easily. Um, so, I mean, even more specific than COVID data, a, a specific example with the vaccination data is the, um, as the cases sort of grow amongst those that are vaccinated, as people become vaccinated, there are new cases. And it has a left an impression that like, even though you're vaccinated, you're still gonna get infected. And, and there were a few stories published in the Straits Times that were looking at how um, a lot of cases were fully vaccinated. And I think it gave the wrong impression to people that um, do vaccines actually work and it starts to cause some like contention in society, right? Yeah. Um, so to me, like a data editor is someone that can flag that and just be like, hey, we need to do a story on this or we need to show the data in a different way or we need to like, um, accurately represent that in a, in a different way. Because I think when like the average journalist is looking at this data, they don't have the knowledge of um, being able to actually process the bias in data and to see how it's coming across. Um, they just kind of see these big data points and they're like, oh, look, the 100 cases yesterday, 80 of them are vaccinated and like, look, it doesn't work. Um, right. So... You know, that to me is something that a data editor should be able to come in and sort of flag. And um, as a data journalist, you would pick that up. But as a traditional journalist, maybe you wouldn't see those right. kinds of flaws in the data. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting to try to build out that. I mean, there are editors, right? And it's like the editors on the words, but like the editors on the data and the data has become so much more important. Uh, it's yeah. interesting like to think about how we... Uh, not just media, I would think like lots of places might need that like data gatekeeper in some sense. Uh, yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier a sort of evolution and how your readers have grown more accustomed to like the, the data viz and the data journalism at, at the times. Can you talk a little bit about the balance between, and you mentioned this a little bit, but just to dive a little deeper, the balance between the print side and then the online kind of interactive side? Like, how is that? How have you seen that? I mean, you've been there for six years, which is like a pretty long time and at yeah. a pretty like important moment in like how DataViz is working. So like in those six years, like how has that evolved? How has that changed? 
not much unfortunately oh, really? yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean look i'll be honest like coming yeah. from australia it's a very tumultuous media landscape and you're kind of in that landscape you're forced to uh, move to digital much faster than any other right. place and so singapore has a very uh, kind of sheltered uh, existence that we have only two main um, news outlets really uh, news companies right. that dominate the market and the Straits Times is the only sort of major uh, newspaper here yeah um, so they for a very long time have um, had all of the advertising money and that thing that's been happening in in the US and everywhere else um, hasn't happened here yet, but it, it is coming. It, it is right. slowly starting to happen. So they, they haven't had like that need to just push into digital and to push into like uh, innovation basically for storytelling. Yeah. Um, and so our team has always been seen as um, I think like a nice to have, like a kind yeah. of like, right. okay, we have a team that does this, this, this foreign team, uh, you know, this Argentinian, <laughs> Australian, Peruvian little team in the corner. Um, right. And that's definitely benefited us because for a long time, uh, we weren't part of the regular news cycle. We weren't kind of yeah. forced into that. And we could, we had the space to be creative um, and to kind of push boundaries and develop our systems and our coding and, and that kind of thing. So I think that really helped. Um, it's led us to produce stories that I think have kind of really touched at least the younger generation of Singaporeans. Like every time we have an internship round, they're always like, oh, that, that um, we did a, a mapping of all of the Singapore streets and uh, they absolutely love that kind of thing. Um, yeah. The gerrymandering graphic that we did where we like really looked at um, political boundaries in Singapore for the elections. Uh, they they definitely they see these things and they their eyes open they go oh the Straits Times can actually produce this kind of content um, and I always get uh, really good feedback for that um, just in terms of like we have to be a little bit creative in terms of the data that we get as well that's that's a true um, that's true for anywhere that you are in the world I think yeah like yeah. Um, so I mean, in the U.S., you have, I guess, a freedom of information clause. Yeah. You you can, with right. a lot of effort and energy and resources, get something sometimes out of places. Um, but in Singapore, that that is not even an option. Like you, mm. you get the data from the government, or you don't. And usually, the data right. is very. Um, very clean, very um, uh, not not um, not granular enough to do those yeah. meaty kind of visualizations. Right. Um, so we've had to be a little bit more um, open mm. to kind of sourcing other data points. So, for example, the Singapore Streets was one where we went through two books <laughs> and manually like uh, oh, started wow. going through. Yeah. <laughs> We got two books and we had like a couple of interns and me and the interns like took, you know, you'll take A to to Z, like A to B and I'll take yeah. the rest, you know, we broke it up that way. Um, 
we managed to classify like thankfully Singapore is quite small so it's not yeah we have to be a little bit outside of the box sometimes um, to get those those media sort of data sets to do something nice with them the gerrymandering one for example um, we I had an intern for about a year beforehand before the elections hand drawing the the boundaries oh, from wow. from yeah pdfs yeah wow yeah so i, I want to talk about the gerrymandering piece uh in a moment and i'll link to it in the show notes because I, I i have a question for you about that but for you specifically um having done print now primarily i guess for a while like do you do you feel like j- just from your personal interests and perspective do you feel like you're excited about this push into digital or do you like the print the you know that idea of people like sitting down with a piece of paper and holding it in their hands and, and working on it or are you excited about all the things that you know the animation and the things that move around and the search buttons and all that stuff that you can do in, in digital cool that's a big question <laughs> i yeah. still i yeah, still yeah. Call on both sides okay so my personal yeah. background is not in print so the the newspaper is definitely print first and foremost but i came in on the digital side and i haven't right. really had to do anything um on the print side i do love those poster type pieces i mean yeah. those beautiful pieces that come out of the national geographic or the New York Times, like you just can't right. deny they are nice to look at and, yeah. and you know, you want to spend time with them, looking through them. Uh, I am a, a book lover, so I love right. having a book in my hand and that tactile feeling, but also um, I'm a millennial, so I'm not like Gen Z. <laughs> <laughs> I right. need to understand right. that right. I'm starting to get on in the world and that's not... <laughs> <laughs> that's not the experience of the next generation like they don't know what that um feels yeah. like. so i don't know how they're gonna i don't know if they're gonna have the same nostalgia for this kind of tactile experience um yeah. so then i guess moving towards digital yeah i'm excited about digital yeah. i just um the possibilities are endless um which is really daunting and really challenging but when you get it right um it's super exciting. And, and the other thing that I, I wanted to touch on a little bit about what you'd said, um, sort of for Asia to come into this scene now, yeah. um, it's really nice to have technologies like what, you know, Mike Boxstock and Observable uh, are doing. Um, they're making it accessible for, for people um, from all backgrounds to kind of start to like plotly and things like that, to be able to start using D3 or like even having tools like flourish, or I believe this, this, the continentalist actually uses um, flourish for a lot of their scrolly telling um, visuals. So that there's a lot more tools now and there's a lot more accessibility in terms of actually producing these um, types of stories. And I think it's allowing um, new voices to come through uh, mm-hmm. from Asia. Another point on that, which I'm I'm super thrilled about, is um, the Myanmar situation. Um, so, in the recent coup, uh, it was an incredible uh, reflection of the efforts in data storytelling and data journalism mm-hmm. and data tools. Because um, I, I know a few people there that have been training up journalists there. 
Um, and there are some incredible resources that they are putting out um, about like deaths or, you know, protest areas and things like, but like proper data sets with right. like, um, you know, APIs, you can pull from the APIs and you can, this would not have happened like yeah. at the last, uh, you know, without, without them opening up a little bit and then having all of these tools at their disposal. Um, you know, it's, it's really nice to see them being able to kind of produce all this data content and it's having an impact um, in getting it out to the rest of the world. So yeah, yeah, that's helpful. All this kind of the tools that the Western people are building for right. the rest of the world is super helpful. Right. So, so it's really democratizing data and data viz. Yeah, it's sort of this international way that maybe many folks who are using it, or some folks at least, who are using those tools may not necessarily realize, right? Because I think a lot of people are excited about Observable and, and Flourish and Data Wrapper and other tools because it makes, hey, I don't need to know how to code, but I can make a bar chart race. Not that anyone <laughs> making bar chart races anywhere, but I can make a bar chart race without having to actually learn how to code. Um, but there are bigger implications of, of those tools for actual news stories, reporting news stories. Yeah, exactly. that's, that's really yeah, yeah. Um, so I want to talk about this this gerrymandering piece. Um, and so maybe, I mean, it is amazing to me that you had someone sit down and draw these by by hand. Um, uh, so maybe you could describe that that piece a little bit. And and the the question that I wanted to get to, um, I'll just I'll just preface this so you could talk a little bit about. It. So as you scroll through this piece, and again, I'll put the link in the show notes. You get to the end where you can type in your address, and this is a, a technique that lots of people use. And I'm curious on your take of like how important that is. That that last aspect of like you can make it super personal, um, as opposed to you know you get through the story, you can see these examples, and then you can say, okay, wh what about me personally? Yeah, I I think it's um, something we probably haven't nailed yet. Um, okay. So that I I don't even think looking back would I do it the same way now. I don't know. Um, obviously, having the personalization element is going to be good for a story like that one because yeah our audience is singaporean um so mostly singaporean i think like 70 80 percent singaporean um so they, they this is a very hyper personal story um so yeah. gerrymandering is a contentious issue in singapore and um it's been dealt with but in various different ways um and nothing like this has been done before and you know, I was a little bit worried about like producing a piece like this and whether it would, whether we'd even be able to publish it. I mean, let's be honest, Singapore does not have the best uh, track record in terms of like, um, you know, media freedoms. And mm. we work for the Straits Times and it also doesn't have the best track record. And that is where data really plays a fantastic role because they couldn't not publish a piece like this because it was, this is, just we just hand drew everything that's available and we right. made it into a map that you can then search. Um, and we tried to make no big conclusions or try to make any sort of big political statements. It was just this is the data and this is the maps and this is what it represents and that's it. Um, so very, right. very dry as much as possible. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> personalizing <laughs> personalizing yeah. the data, I mean, I think... It was an option um, right. that maybe we could have done in a less obtrusive way than what we mm -hmm. did. Yeah. Um, 
Because you can skip it and then get to the yeah. rest of the piece, but then, right. yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I, I didn't find it obtrusive because it kind of came towards after you got through the the lead of the story. Um, right. And you just you see this a lot, and I just you know, I mean, there's a lot of different stories where people do similar sorts of you know, here's a story and housing prices, and you know, now you can put in your zip code and see your housing price. And I think we all know that personalization is important, but I wonder like how important it is and whether people actually use it and, you know, the, you know, the importance of mobile and like, are people using it on their mobile devices? So yeah, I was just curious. Yeah, on how you I actually can't remember now if we tracked that we were, if we were tracking how many people actually uh, clicked on it, but I do, I do remember we got feedback from uh, the community and, and they were super keen to see yeah. what had happened to their, the, the funny thing about Singapore is that, Basically, you've changed constituency almost every single election, wherever you wow. are. It's very, it's very common. So that's why we focused on how many times your constituency had changed. Um, yeah, right. because a lot of the times, so people would be like, "Oh, I got like five times it changed, or like three times it changed." Oh, or, yeah, you know, it yeah, became yeah. like a competition in a way. Right. So, I mean, we oh, knew that going yeah. in. Um, uh, well, Singapore is small, you know, at the end of the day. Yeah. And I do have a funny story to tell about this one. Um, okay. So we <laughs> we were in the office pre-COVID and we were discussing our election coverage. Um, and I had this huge wall set up uh, with all my post-it notes of like all the, the projects we were going to do. And one of them just had, it was a post-it note and it just said gerrymandering across it. And, and I'm sitting there talking with my team. Obviously, I knew it wasn't going to be gerrymandering. It was going to be something a little bit more uh, data heavy. Yeah, um, yeah. Sitting there talking with uh, my team. And then all of a sudden, I look up and there is the vice, uh, the deputy prime minister of Singapore. And a few of the other senior MPs had come on a tour into the newsroom. And <laughs> I had no idea that this was happening. And they're looking around and they're talking to me. And then um, I, they saw, of course, my post-it note that said gerrymandering. And they just all started laughing. And <laughs> I was like, oh, no. I am on the blacklist right now. I'm being kicked out of the country. (laughs) I've never been so like embarrassed. I just wanted to hide. Wow. Yeah, and thankfully they were very nice about it. And and the deputy prime minister, he was like, you know, they just need that. They're journalists. They need to do their job. Let them do their job. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah, that's good. It went by and we ended up publishing it. And my editor-in-chief was there during the whole incident. And I even have a photo of the event I can share with you uh, later. That, so. is, that, is, that is terrific. That is a great story. That is terrific. Yeah. Um, so I want to, uh, before, we, before we close up, um, I know you've been taking, uh, doing a, a master's um, degree. And so I'm curious to hear about that. And... Um, what you've been doing sort of like personal projects and especially during COVID we're all sort of locked in. Like, has that been, um, you're in a master's program, which is hard enough on its, on its own, but you're also doing like uh, what I would guess would be like more personal projects. So has it been like this sort of mix, this weird mix of like, 
I'm working like I'm a student and I'm working, but I also get this like outlet to do personal things that maybe you didn't have the opportunity to do or the instinct to do before actually diving into all of it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I've, I've been just recently completed the master's in visual tools at the University of Girona, which is organized by uh, Shaquin Gonzalez Beira. He's quite famous in the community. Um, he worked for uh, The Guardian and The New York Times and Nat Geo. And he put together this master's program, which is unlike any master's program I think that exists on, on the planet, which is very Shaquin and his foundation. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We started off in October last year. We finished in, in June, so it was quite intensive. Um, and the first, uh, the first uh, block of modules was D3, um, Python, uh, Open Data Engineering, and Statistics. And we did oh, that wow. like yeah, consecutively. We had to produce a project that used all those three elements. And I did not code. I'm not a coder um, at all. I'm a journalist by training. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just really good to get my hands dirty in code. And I finally feel a little bit more comfortable now with actually just giving it a go and uh, trying it out. So yeah. uh, I'm nowhere near like a coder at all, but I'm now not so scared, which is nice. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then the second block was, you know, ethics uh, with Shaquin's module on the creative side of things and also mapping. Mm -hmm. Um and for the Shaquin's particular subject, we ended up having to do what was called 60 days of data. So we had to collect um, 60 days of personal data and then produce something out of that. And I ended up going with, um, I was inspired by a academic paper on turning dance into data, dance okay. movement. It's yeah. called Levan Le Le Movement Analysis. So, and I had no idea that you could do this. At that point, I I used to be a dancer as a kid. I was always dancing. Um, I danced my whole life, basically. And, you know, I went into work and I became a mom and then I stopped dancing. And then and then I had this opportunity where I could, like, marry the two together, like, yeah. and dancing. And I was like, I have to try this. I don't know if it's going to work. And, and that was kind of the beauty of doing the master's program was that, um, it didn't have to be like a fully finished published project yeah. for an editorial paper. It could be right. if it failed, well, it failed. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> right. Yeah, so it was really nice to have that freedom. Um, yeah. So I ended up doing like 60 days of my mental health and then translating that into like data moves um, and then, you know, and presenting that as a, as a data piece and was... Um, I think the most freeing experience I've had uh, mm. that could marry this like data side of me, this logical, uh, you know, factual side of me with the, also the freedom of, of movement and dance. And right. the really nice thing about it was that I found out that if you dance and you sing, um, it actually helps improve your mental health. So yeah. My recommendation at the end of that was all of us in lockdown, just get up and move and shake your bodies and, <laughs> and you know, let it, let it be free and sing and, and you may feel a little bit better. So Yeah. Well, that is, um, that's an awesome way to, to finish this interview. So very, 
positive, uplifting message. Um, dance yeah, that's with great. your I'll, data. Yeah, dance with your data. Yeah, that's so great. That's a t-shirt waiting to happen. Yeah. Um, so um, I'll, I'll put the link to that project up on the show notes so people can check it out. Um, and it's got videos of you, sort of, you know, clips of you dancing next to each of these little pieces. So it's a really, it's a really fun project that people should check yeah. out. Um, Rebecca, thanks so much for, for coming on the show. This has been uh, really fun chatting with you and, and learning all about the, the work you guys are doing over there. Thank you so much for having me. I hope we can talk soon. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> in person, maybe one day. Yeah, in person, maybe. That would be great. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. And thanks to everyone for tuning into this week's episode of the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you learned a little bit about the work that Rebecca's doing. And I hope you'll check out The Straits Times Works. You know, try to check out some of these international newspapers that maybe you're not as familiar with uh, checking out. You know, personally, you know, the ones that I check out, uh, aside from The Washington Post and The New York Times that I basically read every day because I'm located on the East Coast of the U.S., I also tried to read the Chicago Tribune. I tried to read the Los Angeles Times, both of which have some really good data visualization teams going on. I also check out the Berliner Morgan Post, the Hindustan Times out of India, the Straits Times, and a bunch of others. So please feel like you should check out these other organizations around the world because they're doing incredible work and, and sometimes don't get the, uh, the credit that they deserve. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the show. Check out the show notes. Consider writing a review of the show on your favorite podcast provider. And if you'd like to financially support the show, check out our Patreon page or check out PayPal where you can just make a one-time donation. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. A number of people help bring you the Policy Viz Podcast. Music is provided by the NRIs. Audio editing is provided by Ken Skaggs. Design and promotion is created with assistance from Sharon Satsuki Ramirez. And each episode is transcribed by Jenny Transcription Services. If you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Policy Viz podcast is ad-free and supported by listeners. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please visit our PayPal page or our Patreon page at patreon.com slash policyviz.